I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. This is Sian and you're listening to Rebel Radio. Fuck you, Josh. <laughs> What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up? What up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh-huh. Rebel Radio is going down. What did you say? Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I bring you the rebels that are shaping youth culture. We find out how they do it, why they do it, and what you can do to get a little piece of the pie for yourself. We're also the only show to bring you new music every week from our friends over at EDM.com. My name is Josh Levine. My guest this week is Sion. Um, I didn't have him in studio. I went to his, and we did an interview with a beautiful view overlooking uh, the LA skyline. Uh, CN's a DJ, producer. He's the CEO, owner of Octopus Records. He tells us some great stories about how he's um, sort of trying to redefine the boundaries of the techno genre that he operates in um, and how he's trying to transition from a DJ to a touring act and what that looks like, some of the trade-offs, some of uh, why... Uh, why it's important to him not to be on the road his entire life. Great stuff coming up with Sion after our EDM.com track of the week.
Echo Tech with By Your Side, the EDM.com track of the week. If you like that one, get over to EDM.com, check out more new music, and let's get into the interview with Sion. Well, let's talk about you, man. I appreciate yeah, I appreciate you doing this and having me in your beautiful yeah, home. Um, Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, I want to talk about how, how it started for you. Yeah, um, it's kind of an interesting one because I, I suppose I became really um, focused on a really specific type of music super young. Yeah. You know? Um, so what, so take me back to the beginning. Do you, do you remember yeah. the first record you ever Oh, yeah. Bought? When I was a kid, I was obsessed with more like the sound and the atmosphere of things like Peter Gabriel, Duran Duran. Okay. Like anything that sounded like it was made with a machine, uh-huh. I really zoned in on. And a lot of it was pop music and then later things like Kraftwerk and Can and, you know. So, so what's the first, what's the early record that like you were obsessed with? I would have to say probably something by Genesis uh-huh. or something like that, you yeah. know? Just like drum machine sounds. Right. Um, I remember being really, really interested in any music that sounded like Foreigner or Genesis that was kind of synthesizer based. Okay. And I mean, it's strange because it instantly sparked this curiosity of trying to figure out how they made those sounds. Because I, as a kid, I wasn't, you know, synthesizers were really new. And, sure. You know, I'm a child of the 80s, so I was like, what the hell is this? Did they have, they didn't have, so in the US, uh, we had Guitar Center. Yeah. Which, like, I saw, I was like 12, and there was one on my way home from school. Yeah. So I would just walk in. Yeah. And sometimes I would spend three hours in there. Cause yeah. I could just play the sense. Yeah. And, do yeah, all, yeah, and yeah, I didn't yeah, know yeah. how to play anything, but yeah, you yeah, just, just like, make a noise. Mess around. And that's exactly. Did they have that in Europe? Well, at that point, I'd come back from the south of Spain. Got it. And, like, when I was a kid, I lived in this really strange area in the south of Spain where. Down the street from me was a row of um, nightclubs in uh-huh. the 80s, which were super like dodgy, yeah. lots the strangest people. Yeah. Um, and they were listening to like really early Italo disco uh-huh. and early acid house stuff in there. So my parents had a bar, and I'd sneak out and stick stick my head in and listen to it. That's and I was like mind blown by how this was like repetitive and simple. And I sure. started to think like. I could kind of do that. So when I got back to Ireland, I'd go into the, there was like this little thrift store place and I got to know the guy. So I was like starting to buy a lot of records. Like I'd buy them by the weight. Mm-hmm. Like they'd charge me whatever, a few euros per kilo. Crazy. Um, yeah. And I was finding all this really cool old experimental electronic stuff and, yeah. and soundtrack music. Uh-huh. So then the little secondhand like music shop, I went in like, sold a bunch of records and then bought a synthesizer and went home and like reprogrammed the whole thing wow. yeah like a dx7 yeah <clears throat> i remember just sitting for like literally a week on end just making sounds on it and of course not being a, a true like playing musician like i play guitar <clears throat> and keyboards and you know whatever makes mm-hmm. a noise but i wasn't 
skilled enough so the thing about synthesizers was that you just hit one note and yeah. an arpeggiator and make something happen sure you know yeah and that became cool. like yeah then I was so, so, so were you actively trying to make music at that point straight away yeah yeah that's what I was going to say actually it was odd because I messed around with sounds for a little while and then after a few weeks I started trying to figure out how to put them in sequence and trying to make something mm-hmm. and around the same time I started basically annoying a bunch of engineers in Dublin and just saying, like, I'll roll joints, I'll make tea, just yeah. let me sit in the studio. And I finally got a job doing that. It was just, like, wasn't even paid. It was just, like, mm-hmm. a, an intern thing yeah. where i just watch over their shoulder and make loads of tea, yeah. just non-stop cups of tea and roll joints for them and stuff. So then I would stay in the studio at night and do overnight sessions with my friend mm-hmm. and just like sleep on the sofa um, and that turned into me actually making a record mixing it down in the studio where I wasn't meant to be late at night mm-hmm. and I got signed to this label in Paris while I was trying to study and do music technology wow. and the, um, yeah it's really odd because I was on a path to be a marine biologist, oh, wow. which is even weirder. Yeah, because I like literally those two things were running parallel. Like I was, I was helping out in the studio, trying to spend nights there. But I'd just been accepted into studying biology, and had like a free run through three years. Yeah, and like ditched it. What was straight that? Straight away. What was that decision like? It was actually really liberating because I realized that because marine reason, biology. Sorry to cut yeah. you off, but like. That seems to be, I mean, I don't know how you got to that point, but mm. that seems to be a career that you choose. Yeah. It's not yeah. like, you you know. Yeah. It's not it's like. something you think about. It's not yeah. like law or like, no. you just kind of are like on the path and you, yeah. you kind of keep going. Yeah. Like that yeah. one you have to. Yeah. Yeah. It was really specific because as a kid, like as a small child, I was always in the sea and I started to, um, my parents aren't interested in anything like that. They mm-hmm. just like had a bar whatever yeah and um i was always in the sea with my brothers so i started to become like really interested and i was reading all the time about um biology yeah and then i was really crap at school but in the last year i put my head down really really like crammed Mm. so i got a free ride through biology but like the first month that i got that i was like i'm doing this music stuff already (laughs) wow (laughs) yeah yeah it's really weird that's crazy Mm. nice so and and at what point did you realize that that was going to be, that you were going to be able to do that as a career? I honestly never thought about that being like a big career. I just kept doing it. Mm-hmm. And one record or one project led to another, made a little bit of money that enabled me to kind of scrape by to the next one. And then all of a sudden, I put out this one release on Poker Flat in Germany, which was like a important label at the, mm-hmm. that time. there I started to get booked and I was thinking oh wow like I'm gonna do some shows around Europe yeah but then from there I started to get booked like in other spots too mm-hmm. um, like Asia South Africa 
um, then over in the States quite a bit, which led me to just move here and try to focus on here, because I wanted to live here anyway. Like, my goal was to live in California. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, we have great marine biology. Here. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm in the water all the time here. Are but you? Yeah. Nice. Uh, I would like to, I mean, eventually I would like to try and pick it up as a hobby, because I'm always snorkeling and uh-huh. messing around, but <coughs> the only time I get to do that stuff now is in between shows when I'm on tour. You know. Sure. What's the, um, what's the geography of, of techno? Like, where, where is it? Is it, is it fully global? I think... Or are there spots around the world that... I think in Europe, it's, from the outside, it looks big. You know, it's one of those weird things like Icelandic death metal, I'd compare it to, you know? It's like, you look at a DJ that's at the top of their game in European techno, and comparatively, if you bring it over and compare it to electronic music in the States, they're like here on a festival lineup and like USA is like up here. You're talking about like EDM. Yeah, so yeah. I think sure. the really interesting thing about EDM is how it's morphed into absorbing a lot of the underground. Like for example, I never imagined I'd play things like EDCs and mm-hmm. stuff like that, but now they're booking techno acts. Mm-hmm. And there's a type of techno that's more translatable to the US yeah. because you just have bigger numbers and a slightly younger audience right. whereas in Europe it's like a bunch of 40 year olds in Bergheim right. like analyzing each other's record collection is know? that right? Yeah. yeah I feel definitely that's one of the reasons I moved out of Berlin because I'm not that underground like train spotter guy you uh-huh. Know? Uh-huh. yeah that's so funny and where else <clears throat> what's the What's the vibe in Asia and... and Good, I mean, Asia used to... Tokyo had a really booming techno scene, which, I mean, I play there once a year and it's still really good, but it's definitely a lot smaller because bass music and EDM has taken over in such a huge way. The major clubs have switched to that. And that's kind of my feeling for, like, Australia, Africa. But in the States, there's something really interesting happening where these big EDM artists are starting to play records from from our labels mm. and trying because you know a label like mine is kind of one foot in each camp and it's kind of helping take us to a bigger audience so what happens um, you know obviously this music is so uh, different to to mainstream music in the sense that you know it's not artist driven it's not lyrics driven yeah right you don't have hooks you don't have yeah. You know, young girls singing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, um, how does that affect the way the music spreads? So, you talk about, you know, a big EDM DJ puts a, a tune into a set. Yeah. Are people shazamming it? Or, like, how, do, how does that then, yeah. like, what does that mean to, for, to business yeah. when somebody big plays around? Yeah, I mean, you definitely see it. A few big guys last year charted a few of our tracks so we saw like a spike like what's the track well for example moby um above and beyond Uh strangely um steve angelo eric pritz those kind of guys would drop a few of our tunes and put it in their charts and you know kind of get behind it a bit and then all of a sudden we'd see this spike 
of new fans and yeah. we look at them and say well that's super interesting to me like most Berlin techno people would be like oh EDM but I've, I think it's acting like a huge net and I mean everyone's music taste matures as they sure. grow up but if those kids are entering electronic music through this big net of EDM and then in two to five years they make the transition from like you know Steve Angelo to Eric Pritz to Dead Mouse and Richie Houghton and Adam Bayer and then you know it's kind of already an, a little system of introducing people to better music Interesting. I shouldn't say better I should say different music yeah sure yeah, yeah that's really interesting yeah um, okay wait so go back so, so you were uh, you were talking about Genesis to yeah. Rand, like yeah. you know, synthesizer driven yeah. pop music. Yeah. And then how did you where did where did you make the transition to techno or I think the rave scene simultaneously lured me in at the same time that I was listening to things like anything made with synths, like Nitzer Ebb, mm-hmm. Nine Inch Nails, Front Two Four Two, Skinny Puppy, like stuff like that was becoming really attractive to me because it's like darker and it right. has like a lot more energy the same kind of energy as harder techno I suppose yeah. and then I you know going out to raves all the time it, at that point you know people were playing a Nine Inch Nails record alongside like Sabres of Paradise or a techno track you mm-hmm. know so it was kind of this weird mishmash of music that really infor- like influenced what I do now yeah it's strange how I was so open in the 90s, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of the the guy who's always trying to find new sounds and mm-hmm. find, like, new things in music. But I have to say the 90s was a really, really eclectic time for me. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Speaking about subgenres, like, it's, sure. it seems to be more boxed off, certainly in Europe. Like, you can't play a drum and bass record at a techno show or you know it's like boxed off yeah yeah I think there's there's a, a little bit more of that here it seems like yeah yeah that's why I prefer playing in the states yeah so much more open you know yeah. like people are just there to like see the artist and they kind of follow what the artist does in Europe people are there for like the scene mm. in a way yeah yeah, which I think used to be, I think it maybe it used to be more like that here. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Although, you know, we, we have such a uh, diverse culture compared to, exactly. compared to Europe. Yeah, like you go to a party in Ibiza, it's a bunch of, of homogenized people right. listening to a specific type of music. Yeah. You know, it's not pulling influences from lots of different genres. I mean, I, I really like to work with people in hip-hop or trap or people, you know, I'm a huge metal fan and mm-hmm. I'm not afraid to have those things influence what I'm trying to do. And do your, your fans or people that follow the label, like, are they open to that? Not yet, yeah. but in the next year, one of our big plans is to broaden the scope of what we're doing with, nice. with the label and myself. Like this, I have an album coming soon that's got some of my guitars on it it's right. got some like yeah it's got some slower tracks and some ambient stuff and yeah it's just kind of all my influences interesting wrapped up yeah. 
So how do you balance that? I talk a lot about that on this show and just with friends about the um, the disparity between what the artist wants to make and what the fans want to hear, right? Yeah. And I feel I feel like uh, well, I think it, I think it's for obvious reasons. The artist is always you know several steps ahead. Hmm. If nothing else, because the music that people are dancing to, you know, today, you made a while back. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although I know that window's gotten shorter, but it's still, yeah. there's still a lag. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if you go out and tour it and whatever, yeah. you're, you're sometimes a year yeah. later, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a long time. And if you have a hit record, you're several, you could be several years performing yeah. that same song. Right? <laughs> yeah. So like so, there's always that lag, and the um, and the you know it's it's understandable, but it's also it's a problem for artists. Definitely, yeah. Because you want to move on. Yeah. They want. Yeah. They, they want. They want, right? they want the same thing. Yeah. I think, for me anyway, um, the only way is to not to give a shit and to think, okay, it's like what Henry Ford said, if if he gave people what they want, they'd have a faster horse, right. you know? And like, sometimes it's, I think it's kind of the artist's job to say like, come with me on this trip. And mm -hmm. whether you fail or win at that mm -hmm. is really dependent on the marketing or something, I don't know. But I mean, I've seen artists go in all kinds of directions successfully and... Who, who do you think, when you think of that, who, who does that really well? For me, Daft Punk, as a really commercial example, two guys that were in indie bands, yeah. that's, you know, they got their name from a terrible review of their indie band. It failed, they started another band which failed, and then they were just playing techno, like hard acid techno mm. in Paris. Once Homework hit and really became a big crossover thing, which is like a really underground album if you listen to it. Sure. Um, then they became this kind of artists that was still uncompromising but managed to bring all their influences in disco and film music and mm -hmm. you know and rock too mm -hmm. and kind of put their stamp on it and made it sound like their own same with justice i suppose yeah maybe yeah maybe dance music is kind of meant to do that you know it's meant to pull all those things in and, and kind of take those chances yeah. You have you have your label and and you know your your DJ and producer yeah um, which obviously is a very common way to operate especially yeah. in dance music yeah um, why is that a good idea I think it's kind of a system that's set up whereby your label becomes like this advertisement for who you are and what you know what you're trying to bring to mm -hmm. people in terms of your own sound and uniqueness then the DJing thing is still really bizarre to me you know like mm -hmm. I love DJing I like playing records I mostly play sets of my own music or music from the label yeah. these days yeah. but I'm actually trans 
um, form in what I'm doing into being a live act, mm. like a live electronics show. Yeah. Um, over the last year, I've been working on that. So, yeah, I mean, the DJing thing is just so interesting for the two types of artists. There's like people like me who would rather be in the studio mm -hmm. and not at an after party, and then there's like the DJ guy who's right. like Fisting going out, yeah, going down the road, going nuts every night, and going to every after party available, and that was never really what I was about, I would rather be in the studio making music. Yeah. So those those two things are very, very mutually exclusive, mm -hmm. you know, because most of the DJ guys have ghost producers mm -hmm. and they're just about the brand and they go and get those big DJ fees and, yeah. and then spend that on driving a team. Whereas producer people are making their own music and usually have their own label and are kind of trying to build a sound around that. Yeah. So what is there? A, is there a downside to kind of having both businesses? Um, yeah, I feel like they're they're tied to each other because the bigger your label gets, the bigger your shows get, and also sure. the bigger your shows get, the bigger your label can get. Yeah. It's an obvious one, but. I feel like the lifestyle of going out on the road and going for like three days of shows, late nights, airport, mess ups, the whole lot, yeah. then coming back and being a proper label owner is uh -huh. impossible. Yeah. Like I have three people who work with me now and I've started to do less but bigger shows, so mm -hmm. just focusing on one's that are really significant and I know that are going to be the right moves. But before there was a period where I was running the label on my own and doing like three shows or four shows a week sometimes. Wow. Yeah. That's so that was like in a hotel room, working on the plane. Yeah. You know, and when you think about it, like, as I'm sure you know, running labels, loads of back-end office work. It's not like glamorous at all. It's not yeah. like feet up on the desk, smoking a cigar. like Yeah. Signing. No, it's like yeah. Excel forms, yeah. you know, and I think that's why a lot of people just use their DJ fees to pay someone to do that. creativity and like you know when are you when are you what circumstances allow you to be most creative when I know that I don't have to go to the airport in 10 minutes <laughs> basically yeah yeah uh, I think any artist ultimately has this weird thing where luckily you know I'm I've been careful of this but friends of mine they put out a record it does well and then they go on tour mm -hmm. for like eternity mm -hmm. because they'll take every single show even yeah. if it's not paid well or attended well they'll just take all those shows just to be out on the road living the life and then their creativity just goes sure 
Uh, I've seen it with so many bands, so many artists, and like when you come home from a Monday of three or four nights of partying and you know a twelve-hour flight delay, you don't want to make music or. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So I've tried to avoid that, and I think <coughs> the key is to. I mean, for me anyway, I want to become like a live electronic act mm -hmm. and go on tour for a period and then go off tour for a period. But the DJ lifestyle is just nonstop touring. I mean, yeah. bands never do that. Hip hop artists never do that. <coughs> right. Like DJs do two or three gigs a week, every yeah. single week. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, unless you're talking like EDM level, higher level, mm -hmm. in techno, it's not as, I mean, it's overinflated. It's not a good business. What do you mean? Like, for example, I have some friends who will go out on tour and they will hammer it. Like, they're working really hard on the road. They're doing every show they can. They come back and after they've paid their management and their agent, mm -hmm. plus the flights, plus booking fees, plus hotels, plus living on the road, they're like hood rich, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. It's not, I mean, unless you get your fees up to the level of an established act, like an underground techno DJ is like a terrible career option. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. Yeah, especially in Europe where the fees are like a fifth of what they are here. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Mm. Huh. It's strange because the, there's a lot of bigger clubs in Europe that will actually pay artists less mm -hmm. because of the, you know, the willingness of underground artists to to try and play that venue. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting economy, right? And, and yeah. there's always that, uh, you know, there's always the question, I think, of, of who's, you know, who, what's the draw? Mm. Is the DJ the draw? Is the club the draw? Is the promoter yeah. the draw? Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't have that. You don't have that in the movie business. Yeah. Right, where people... Right. You know, they come to see a film, yeah. not because the theater mm. is there. I mean, yeah. I guess, you know, in some ways they do, Yeah. but for the most part, right, mm. it's very clear that the value is on the film side. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think that's true for the actual music business. I would say in the underground business, it's like not really a business. It's just a bunch of dudes who hang out at an after party trying to put a tour together and that sure. it's kind of I'm grat I'm kind of grateful but, but even so I, th I think like you know look at, the, look at the festival business right like yeah the, the better festivals you know uh, granted you know Coachella plays they pay big fees mm. but uh, they don't have to mm. yeah right like first of all they sell out yeah most of the tickets before they announce the lineup yeah people just trust that they're going to have a yeah. lineup yeah and, yeah that's and true and secondly you know, does any one act affect the ticket sales that mm. much? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, you know, I think in, in some cases the festival has totally. become the brand. Yeah. Or a festival like Burning Man where the fans create the festival. For sure. You know? Yeah. Or, I th you know, I think if you look at, like, lighting in a bottle. Yeah. You know, I think most people... Yeah, they get excited about who's playing. Yeah. They're, they're really going. Yeah, for the experience. For the experience. Yeah. I've noticed that with electronic festivals recently. Yeah. It seems like you're going to the circus. 
you know yeah. it's like these crazy like sure. going to a fairground you know yeah, <coughs> yeah well I mean EDC is like yeah they're the best at that right yeah um, yeah yeah it's I don't kind know of a that, spectacle sure yeah yeah and I mean I guess that's just festival culture in general people don't really know who they were dancing to until they go and check it out later right. and like that was great I think you know. yeah Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I I eventually want to move into being more of like an act uh, rather than a DJ, yeah. you know, so that you can go to a city and do a show. It's like a hard ticket, like proper show. You know, mm-hmm. it's interesting because most DJs don't think like that. So why 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 is that a good idea? Because I'd like to try and build a different type of following mm. where you have a fan base that's like a little bit less about the scene and more about like your development as an artist and mm-hmm. you know when you for example someone like Flying Lotus or Mode Selector or Trent Muller, I mean mm-hmm. will go to a city and do hard ticket shows and people are kind of there for their vibe sure. you know and not it's a club that's booking all these techno acts every weekend and, yeah you know yeah interesting Mm. So uh, we were talking earlier that you, you've got a collaboration with Will Clark coming. Yeah, in. yeah. Um, it's called a mock. A mock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so how does how does stuff like that? How do you collaborate? What what kind of collaborator? It's are you? Uh, yeah, it's weird actually how that came about. We literally went for a bowl of ramen and we we're just like talking about music and influences and stuff. Yeah, and. Um, we decided on doing something like really quickly so for me anyway it's it's better like I work on a very small electronic setup I'm mm-hmm. not in this big studio with all this gear and it's really easy for me to just send parts to someone or them send parts to me yeah. I work on it throw it backwards and forwards like I don't need to be in the studio with someone and doing multiple takes and whatever it's really nice way to work actually because it's yeah. so fast He's got this big studio. And yeah. He's, he uh, he's always he can't stop himself from buying new gear. Yeah. And he, uh, you know, we we joked about it, but like he's he's convinced himself that that helps him be creative, right? That yeah. he gets a new piece and he can't wait to go use yeah. it and make something. And, yeah, yeah. And whatever. And, yeah. Uh, you know, we were sort of joking that like, well, you know, that you don't re- you don't actually need any of the gear. Mm. But if it makes you productive, yeah, then it's a worthwhile yeah, investment. Yeah, totally. Yeah, right. I'm the same, but with plugins. Yeah, like luckily, I used to work in a in a studio full of analog gear. I used to yeah. big 48 channel desk, the whole lot, because you used to have to do that. But everything sure. that I liked about that, I can do much faster on my laptop now, yeah. and without the compromise on sound quality. Yeah. Because that was the thing. It was always sure. plugins didn't sound as good as analog gear, but right. that's changed. They could sound better, yeah. you know. Yeah. 
um, and also just not having to write down every setting on every piece of equipment <laughs> on a piece of paper. It's totally. like, uh, yeah. People romanticize analog days, but oh, yeah. no, I used to. One of my one of my horrible tasks was getting in behind a big desk and rewiring an entire patch bay as a uh-huh. kid, and it was like a punishment. Yeah, so, sure. Yeah. Um, so it reminds me. You said something on Twitter. I think just the other day that. Uh, oh, you know, I, I wrote it down here. Let me, right. Uh, let's see. I'm gonna. Oh, you said it. Your brain and a laptop is all you need to make music. Yeah, right <laughs> yeah. So is that a good thing? I think so. Yeah. Because we're in this strange time where a kid with, I mean, I didn't like. It was really hard for me to get my hands on gear to start making music, you know. Yeah. And a kid now with a cracked, cheap version of whatever software, and his laptop can make like a top 10 hit, mm-hmm. you know? And that kind of democratizes mm-hmm. things really fast. Because like, when I started, it was like you needed a hundred grand to make a studio. Sure. And, and produce an album from that and then press it on vinyl and get it out there. Yeah. But now it's like a kid with his headphones and laptop can put out a track in SoundCloud and become a star. Mm-hmm. That's really important to me. You know, I mean, uh, sometimes I wonder if the, you know, I I feel like in some ways we're better off when that process takes longer. Yeah, for the art of it. Yeah. Yeah. That we have the opportunity to to develop. Totally, totally, I get it, yeah. I feel though we were talking earlier about how so many A and R people miss the ball sure. or miss the entire wave, yeah. and one of the things about the immediacy, of course, I don't think everyone should just make a track and throw it up on SoundCloud because that floods right. your whole system with noise that you can't find the good stuff in. I think there should be a process. But another thing is like if you look at a kid can put up a track and say like let the fans decide Mm -hmm. and kind of almost crowdsource their own creativity and have real feedback in their comments about their track like that's something that no one ever had as a musician before because the A&R guy can be completely clueless sure you know and miss the best track on that album yeah whereas the fans go it's like techno DJs always joke about that like your track is is really a kind of strange dichotomy like that maybe the fifth or sixth track on that demo Mm -hmm. will be what I would love to sign to my label Mm -hmm. and artists send me all these demos and go oh but did you not like the first three and I'm like no really like five and six go play them in a club and you'll see what I mean that's funny If you're enjoying this one, let's go back in the Rebel Radio archives. Check out my interview with Will Clark, one of Sion's um, close collaborators. He was uh, caught up with Will at Coachella in in the interview tent, RV, whatever that was. Um, We had a a short episode together, but had a good time talking to Will and uh, learning a little bit about what he was up to. So you can go check that one out after you're done here. Um, 
That's interesting. I just read an article today about what, about you know how artists are putting their first song, their best songs first. Yeah. On the albums, and it, it was about the Spotify algorithm. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think it's a. You know, it says something that you would get to somebody's fifth track, yeah. especially if you didn't love yeah. the first. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's kind of the interesting thing I've learned about demos is that sometimes what the artist is doing, they'll just put the track that they made yesterday first, right. because that's what artists that's what like. About. Yeah, it's what they did yesterday. What they did a week ago or or even a month ago, they're like over it already. Yeah. But for a fresh listen, that's the important one. You know? Yeah. So people are sending you demos. Yeah, all a lot. the time, I'm sure. A lot. Um, and so how much of your signing is that? Like, how much are you pitching artists to sign to you yeah. versus them pitching you? Nowadays, we have a, a really nice crew of people, like regular people that we work with, like a yeah. roster of artists. Yeah. But in the start, I was digging through every demo, and I still listen to pretty much everything. Wow. Yeah. yeah. As much as it pains me sometimes because... <laughs> There's a lot of irrelevant music. I wouldn't say good or bad. It's just sure. not relevant not what to what we want to do. Yeah, because yeah. we're kind of niche. Yeah. But yeah, I listen to a lot of new music. Yeah. And even sometimes I really like it, but it's just not for us. So I won't respond. You know. So so how do you how do you pitch an artist? I don't know how much this actually happens. Yeah. Like how do you pitch an artist? Yeah. To sign to your label or to give you a track, the old, right? Because the, the yeah. people, you know, you're not signing exclusive deals. Right, to some yeah. Right. There's a couple artists that are okay. exclusive to us, but mostly they're track deals, right? Yeah, and yeah. So you have a relationship with them, but they also work with half a dozen other yeah. labels. Yeah. So how does that like? Give me a. What's the pitch? Mostly the old-fashioned way. Yeah. S- send them some music from the label. Okay. Start. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's mostly like. Getting to know the person as well, I think obviously most of these things happen in a backstage or get them onto their promo list, feed them with loads of music from the label. If they're coming back with loads of positive feedback, then it's a very easy ask to say, why don't you do something for the label next? Sure. It's one of my tricks. (laughs) No, it's smart. Yeah. 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 And it's kind of natural because if you're feeding someone music and they're really responsive, doesn't matter what size they are, is it what size profile? If they want to do it, it's up to them. You know, we've had some really big artists do stuff on the label, and they were like, "I just like what you do. Like, don't worry about it. We'll do this as a swap, or you know, we'll figure out some paperwork later. But let's yeah. just get it out." You know. Nice. Uh, and do you have like a, a wish list of artists that you? Yeah, you absolutely. I mean, I think now in this strange period where we're transitioning into being like a broader spectrum label Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that i'd love to i mean i would love to bring all kinds of artists onto the label and develop them as making like albums rather than just singles all the time which i mean i know it's kind of a singles market but that honestly bores me sometimes because i I really want to hear an artist like make a trip you know well it's a singles market i mean it is but you know, I think especially so if you're if you're making uh, music for Spotify for SoundCloud. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I think those specifically are really singles formats. Yeah, yeah. But 
um, you know, the music industry can't just be about that. I know, I know. And I think that's hard for, for a lot of labels. And actually, the underground labels, I think, have a better opportunity mm. because the streaming dollars are limited anyway. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Right? Not that they're not important. I don't yeah. Mean, you know. I'm yeah, sure yeah, yeah, yeah. The Getting more get important. Streaming is yeah. important for sure. Yeah. But you know, but you're never going to get uh, you know Pitbull streaming numbers. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. Whatever his name is. Yeah. Louis Fonsi, right? Like. Yeah. That's not happening. Yeah. So you've got to have different revenue mm. streams, and, mm. and you know. It's really interesting. We had a meeting with our um, our aggregator. And they, what they're being told by, by a lot of the streaming companies is like hoover up that underground label structure and really make it interesting in terms of passing that on to a wider audience. Mm-hmm. So like recently tracks of mine have popped up in these big Spotify playlists that I'm nice. super happy about because they're not necessarily something, I mean it, it's happening naturally because I'm making music that's broader and working with different people yeah yeah and it's really interesting how that how that changes your profile with the normal festival goer versus the anorak train spotter mm-hmm. techno fan you know mm-hmm. so who's uh, when you talk about this this vision for the label that's that's more broad mm. than what you've been doing um, who's done that I don't think many people have apart from I would say labels, you mean people that have taken a label to a point where it's bringing in other genres and mm-hmm. I'd say maybe Owlsla, Boys okay. Noise, mm-hmm. um, to a certain extent Gisafel style. Um, I would say like Ed Banger Ooh. and XL. Mm-hmm. I mean, XL was like a straight underground label sure. back in the 90s. Yeah, and yeah. The Prodigy happened and Zombie and yeah. the XX. And, you know, they're an actual record company. Yeah, you know? yeah absolutely. Mm. Um, what about, I know we were talking about festivals um, and, and Miami, what's it called now? Miami Music Week? Yeah. I still call it yeah. Music yeah. Conference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's coming up. Yeah. Does that still matter? Yeah, 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 definitely. It's obviously a lot more focused on EDM because sure. of Ultra, but um, for example, I still do a party there every year. Mm-hmm. We were doing the Winwood Factory this year. Nice. Um, and what, do you, what, is, what do you get out of that? Like what? I think it's just being present and trying to establish a brand and you're in techno at... I mean, we're... We're opening up a lot more. Like this year, we've got Will and mm-hmm. Sasha Body and Melee playing with us. And you know, before we brought in like Ellen Alien or DJs that are a little bit more indie or crossover too. Yeah. Um, I still, I still think it's relevant, and I'd like to be there. You know, even if it's just for one night. Like, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I try to go when I can. Yeah. You know, I don't go every year, but I go. Mm off and on just yeah. to see people and whatever yeah. but, but I always think like it's interesting how you you know there's so many uh, festivals conferences you know South mm. happening now like, yeah it's um, it's 
sometimes you just feel like you have to be at everything and, and yeah. not necessarily understand what you're getting out of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You pick your bottles. Yeah. Mm. I get to this point where I'm like, you know, really choosing what I should be out on the road for. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It can affect your whole. Of course. Your well, like whole I said, existence. time away from the studio and away from. Yeah, and also just you become really disillusioned sometimes with what it is, you know, like you land in a city, some person in a nice car picks you up, you go to the venue, hopefully you're paid well, blah, 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 you stay in a nice hotel, and you're, you're not, you're just kind of the only person that's on their own for the whole period. Right. It's strange, you never think about that, because bands go on tour and they have their bandmates with them, not sure. that, I mean, I, I like just to Which is sometimes good and sometimes not, right? Exactly. But I mean, a lot of DJs, I like to be on my, on my own for vast amounts of time, reading or working or whatever. Um, but of course, you know, I miss girlfriend and, and home and everything. Mm -hmm. But a lot of DJs go absolutely nuts with that. And that's where I think a lot of the problems with their lifestyle come from, like substance abuse, sure. um, mental health issues. Yeah. Because if you think about it, it's a really weird life. Like, you're on your own on holiday all the time. Right. You know? Yeah. It's really weird. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you're sort of like alone with a lot of people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a weird experience, yeah. right? Yeah, totally. And that's, I think that's one thing that can make people feel the most isolated is not just being on their own but being around people that make them feel like they're really alone yeah. you know because if you look at it the average dj falls into that pitfall really quick of just going to the after party with strangers mm -hmm. and then it's like more about lifestyle choices sure you know? of course hmm. who's a who's a big techno fan that surprised you um georgia marauder <laughs> oh yeah yeah maybe um who else? Grace Jones. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I, I see her being in the yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's a few. I mean, Madonna's an obvious one. She worked with tons of good yeah. people. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I, I, I would be surprised to see um, how many people in fashion, especially nowadays, like people like Rick Owens and... Ralph Simmons is a huge techno fan, and it's sure. like kind of makes sense because yeah. they come from those backgrounds. But right. yeah, um, well, I think if they're <coughs> if they're German, it doesn't count. Yeah, I've had people like Puffy and stuff show up too. Sure. When I was, you know, playing at clubs like Space or whatever. Yeah. And you were kind of like, mm, they get it, you know. Yeah. Well, he's a he's a, obviously a huge dance music fan. Yeah. Kind of, uh, you know immersed himself in that yeah. some years ago. Yeah. Well, I think that I just, you know, we were talking about sort of the, the subgenres and that, and so I know, you know, you're with, uh, you know, you have the same manager as Dead Mouse, yeah, right, or same same company, yeah. Um, so clearly, you know, clearly they get the the different, the, they get it, yeah, right, yeah. Um, 
how much of that I don't know how, how much of that do you run into of, of like mm. the crossover like that yeah, yeah or just the lines between these it is quite rare that someone at their level of success in in a more, I mean, Dead Mouse is I wouldn't consider it commercial music. He's still, no. he still has that punk attitude where he will put out music that he just likes. Sure. You know, regardless of whether that, you know, people think it should be successful or not. But right. he has a knack of doing that. And yeah, and his music was never the like, yeah. You know, Alesso yeah no uh, no no like the yeah. really big room yeah kind of stuff. it always had an angle to it like an honor, yeah. a, a kind of feeling of like experimentation in a way mm -hmm. it was like weird big music which I really like sure um, yeah it's rare for them to to get the the kind of underground stuff and I think not that I'm a super underground guy or anything but I feel like that's a really interesting place for me me to be mm -hmm. is to come from that background and to progress into making music for like a bigger stage yeah that's kind of what happened naturally with me yeah like the music that I'm going to be putting out in the next year is a, a strange mixture of acid and electro stuff and and sounds from drum and bass and sounds from death metal and weird creepy 80s vocals and guitars and wow yeah so <laughs> that's exciting yeah 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 and I, I is there I, is there fear with that oh yeah of course but I feel like I can't stop doing that because I started on a path of you know I got quite limited feeling like I can just make 4-4 four, four hard sure. techno records yeah and from that feeling of like being feeling really trapped and like a seedling over your head I started messing around again with my guitar and with all these effects and all this stuff and I think what came out of that was just all my influences together I'm much happier making music like that now I couldn't continue just doing straight underground techno records yeah this is not it's not part of my evolution you know nice mm. okay lightning round yeah go for it um What's your favorite city to travel to? At the moment, I'd have to say Tokyo. Oh, I mm. love Tokyo. Mm. I saw an acid attack there. Oh, yeah. Last two, a year and a half ago. Nice. Amazing. Yeah. And it's cool to see them in that. Totally, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Mm. Where were they playing? It was some warehouse down... Yeah. yeah. But towards the airport. Okay, yeah. Naruga. I don't know. Mm. It was really cool. Very cool, yeah. Um, who's your favorite DJ? I would say maybe someone like Ivan Smack, who's mixing up rock, psychobilly, techno, like mm. anything, and can somehow make it all sound like a party, you know? That's cool. Mm. What's the re last great book you read? I would say... Just recently, I finished um, Zoo City by Lauren Bukas. Okay. Yeah, which is really good and super weird. I don't know. And also Lunar Park by Brady Sinellis. Okay. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I haven't read either of those. So. Yeah. I'm a I big audiobook freak. So. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually, there's an there's a Irish author that I read a lot. Flannery O'Connor? It's not French. Okay, yeah. yeah. Interesting. I love her stuff. Yeah. Her, it, 
think yeah. so. Yeah. 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 Like it's like cop, like mystery. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Cool. I should give you some audio books. Oh yeah. A bunch of new stuff. Yeah. Nice. Right on. Mm. Um, what movie have you seen the most in your life? Blade Runner. Yeah. The final, 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 final cut probably. That and Dune were like huge oh, influences yeah. on me. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, if someone's put me on the spot, definitely Blade Runner. It's a classic. Sure. Classic techno DJ. Thing, <laughs> Absolutely. You know? yeah. yeah. I think you you might be our second guest who's seen yeah. Blade Runner. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a great movie, but it's like, it, it's an intense movie. You yeah. can't just like throw it on. Yeah. Yeah. Fold laundry or yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, what... Tell me one decision that changed your life forever. Getting my face tattooed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How, what What are some uh, unexpected consequences? You know what's really weird is the demographic of people that will come up to me and say like, "You're a very nice young man, but why did you tattoo your face and your hands and your neck?" Yeah. But more so, it's like a kind of sixty-year-old retired, like, older lady who will always come up and go, I love your tattoos, they're so artistic. Really? Yeah, it's super weird. That's great. That and teenagers. Uh-huh. They just think yeah, they're sure. badass, you know? Yeah, I'm sure. Um, that's so funny. <laughs> Complete this sentence for yourself. I don't have talent, I have blank. Um, I would say... Ambition. Good. Or drive. Better. So if I worked for you, what's something I would hear you say over and over? Um, can you swear? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm usually pretty mind blown by almost everything that happens in the day because it's always different. You yeah. know, I'm always finding myself going, I don't fucking believe this. You know, <laughs> like dealing with artists, dealing with people in the industry, just dealing with things that are like kind of inexplicable in a good way too you know I'm always super surprised by everything that's going on yeah doing this stuff and running the app and whatever I mean that's probably great to not lose that you know I think when yeah. it becomes yeah routine right yeah yeah you know you lose the magic yeah for better or for worse I could say I'm constantly surprised by yeah. stuff which is like I have a naive childish thing like that you know that's good yeah I want to keep that nice somehow <laughs> who would you be most excited to learn appreciates your work um maybe hmm, that's a good one I would say Probably not anyone in music, mm. unless it was someone like Hans Zimmer or something like that. Mm-hmm. I would say probably more so someone from film, because I watched so many movies and I so, like, grew up just glued to sci-fi. Yeah. I would say, yeah, maybe a director, you know, someone like Christopher Nolan, or mm. maybe Darren Aronofsky, something like that. Nice. Yeah. I could see Darren being into it. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be amazing. Yeah. Uh, I don't know him, but his partner, um, I went to high school with his, okay, his right. production partner. Cool. Yeah, he's an old friend. Mm. Funny. I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Huge fan. Yeah, I mean, his stuff is. Yeah, really, really unique. Or, yeah, even like 
I suppose, yeah, someone probably someone from the film industry because that would be somewhere I'd like to go in the future yeah. to make music for film. Sure. Yeah. That's cool. Um, cool, man. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. My pleasure. Fun talking to you. We'll be watching uh, for all the next moves. Yeah. What's, what's, um, so what's, what's coming up next? I'll be in a bunch of other cities, April um, through August, and trying to get an album together. I'm not sure where it'll come out, but yeah. I'm going to wrap it up, complete some visual stuff that accompanies it, mm -hmm. and then go out and tour it as a live show. Uh, nice. See how that goes. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so where does everybody find you online? Uh, DJCM.com mm -hmm. or 720 group or 720.com or Octopus Recordings. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, that was Sion on Rebel Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Let us know what you think. Give us a review, ratings, five stars, blah, blah, blah. iTunes. Hit us with a comment on Twitter, on Facebook, at Rebel Radio Net. You can see videos from a lot of our episodes on our YouTube page. And most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace. <laughs>